Acts chapter 17, if you would turn there with me. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles that are there under the pews. And we're going to look at the remainder of, of Acts chapter 17 this morning, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul, Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, we, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in, not, in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, notice this, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus and Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. We have been watching the Lord work in mighty ways in the early church. And we've specifically been watching the Lord work through these first and new missionaries. And here we find the Apostle Paul. He left Berea, he's gone 200 miles to Athens. If you remember, he left Timothy and he left Silas behind. And he's now gone and he's, he, he was forced to flee Thessalonica and then he was forced to, to flee Berea and now he's come to Athens. 
And Athens is known as that area that, that was just the intellectual capital of the world. It, it, it is the place where for the previous several hundreds of years, it was just philosopher after philosopher that would have studied there and learned there. And they saw themselves as just the intellectual elite of the entire world. The Romans conquered Athens in 146 BC, but Athens still continued to be a, an area that was, was free as well as an area that, that was just um, kind of like the, the, the prize of the, the Roman Empire. And so Paul goes there. And as he goes there, he calls for Timothy and, and, and Silas, but he's, as he's waiting for them, he just looks at this city and he sees that they are far, far from the Lord. It tells us in verse 16 that while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. You wonder what, what, what someone like Paul would think if he came to Orange County, stayed here for a period of time, looked at all that was taking place. What would he look at and think like, okay, I am provoked and I need to do something because this particular land is like this. Um, I don't think you'd have to go far in our land to find that in a similar way, we're given over to idols, people that have idols in all kinds of different ways. Idols of money, idols of power, idols of, of the, the, the way in which people think of them. False religions on corner after corner after corner. A church that, that has become so secular in so many different ways and Scripture that has gone so far from pulpits around our land. Well, he's here and he sees this. And his heart, his spirit is provoked within him when he sees this. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And so as is the custom of the Apostle Paul, he goes and immediately goes to the synagogues, starts ministering there, but he's also ministering within the marketplace. And it tells us he's ministering in the marketplace daily. Daily going amongst the people that are in that particular city and ministering the gospel with those who happened to be there, whoever happened to be in that region, wherever he was at, he wanted to minister the gospel to. Well, it tells us that there's a certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers that encountered him there. And these are, are those that Epicureans would be those that believe that Everything that happens in this life, everything that happens in this world happens by chance. There are those that would teach that, that pleasure is the most important thing and avoiding pain is, is the, the main reason why we exist. Pleasure and avoiding pain. That's why we exist. They taught that, that at death, our bodies would just disintegrate there'd be no such thing as afterlife at all. That picture there, does that not describe so many people in our land today, in our country today, throughout the world today? People that they, they live for pleasure and they do everything to avoid pain. They 
believe in evolution, possibly, where they just think like they live and they're to cease the day, they're to do everything they possibly can for their own pleasure and to avoid pain, and they're going to die, and at that point, they will just simply cease to exist. That's where these people were at. The Stoics, they were pantheists. They believed in all kinds of different gods. But they believe that everything is God. And as a result, it was just a, um, a life of apathy and detachment. Kent Hughes says it is, it's, it's fatalistic resignation. That's how they lived. Gods everywhere. We're told that there was more gods in Athens than there were people. Thousands, tens of thousands of little idols everywhere. And so here is where the Apostle Paul is. It says in verse 19, And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. So they bring him before those that are to judge, and, and, and they're not bringing him for trial, but some, just what is it that you are speaking? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. He's not saying that these, these people are just eager to know the gospel. They just they want to learn things. Age of information. We just want to learn. We, you just tell us what it is that you believe. We just want to hear new things. And so they're there and they want to hear. But we're told that Paul stood in the midst of them at Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Notice how he begins ministering to these people. Here's the people, these aren't those necessarily that know of the God of Israel. They're there that believe in no God or they're those that believe in Countless gods. But he begins with them saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. I'm looking at everything that's in the city and you're clearly religious. There's idols everywhere. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. I'm walking through and I see all of your idols. And I found one. An altar. And it just has the inscription to to the unknown God. So at least to some degree, you're in a place of recognizing that you don't know all things. And there's this one God in whom you say is the unknown God. And you can just see the, the, the kindness the grace of the Apostle Paul as he's ministering. He just doesn't come in and immediately start hammering them. He comes in and he's just like, I could tell you're religious. There's idols that are everywhere, but there's one and it says to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And so you get to see him walking around thinking like, "This, this is a door for the gospel. The unknown God, I want to tell you about him. And then he begins to describe him. God, 
who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, we know the Stoics were pantheists, and we know the Epicureans were practical atheists in, in, in all essence. And, and so he goes to them and says, let me tell you about this unknown God. Let me tell you about the God of this universe. He, he's way different than your gods, small g. He's way different than them. He made the world and everything in it. Everything that exists, he made. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's way bigger than your gods that could be knocked over. He's way bigger than your gods that could be carved. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Paul immediately goes to the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God is the one that has always existed. You think of just this world in which we live in, and, and there's the law of cause and effect that people argue for God's existence. And when you look at that, you think of every effect has to have some kind of cause. If we have a whole series of dominoes that are there and give it thousands of dominoes, and, I, and, and they, they all start moving, they all start falling down. There had to be something that caused the first one to fall. Something that, that knocked it. Something that made it go. When you think of this universe that we live in, we, we, we find that it's in motion. We find that it is moving in a direction. And what we find is that it's moving in, in a direction of, of, of destruction, ultimately. Um, but everything's in motion. Our Earth's in motion. Our solar system's in motion. You have everybody that is here. You have atoms and molecules and all these things that are in motion. But what is the first cause? And, and there's those that would say it's all here by chance. And yet chance has no ability to do anything. It has no power. There's nothing that chance can do. Some people say that it's evolution that, that, that is there and you just have to just keep going back. And, and, and yet there has to be something that started it. There has to be something that's the first cause. And so the argument that goes in the cosmological argument in theological terms that goes in that, that says God is the first cause. There has to be something that's eternal. And that eternal thing is not chance. That eternal thing is God. He is the first cause. He is that which has always, always existed. And that is what we as Christians believe. Hebrews 3, 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. He's the first cause. And so we see here where this is his argument. This is what he begins with. God, he made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Jeremiah 23, 23 tells us, I am a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? And we find that that is the case. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's not in a temple made with hands. He is over all things. 
Verse 25 says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life and breath and all things. He doesn't need anything. So he is the creator of all things. But he is sufficient in all ways. He doesn't need anything. This is important for us to get. God is not a God that that's there throughout our universe, just creating us because he's in desperate need for someone. God has always existed and has been in a place of incredible, joyful, perfect fellowship with God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. They have always existed in their perfect triune Godhead. But he's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. Sometimes our view of God is far too small. We're in a place where we think that God's there and he's just like, okay, I just, I, I need him on my team. I want that person. And, and, and he's trying so hard, but he just can't get everything to work the way in which he wants, or he wants everybody to worship him, but just unable to do these things. He's so frustrated. And that's not the God that we find in scripture. We don't find a God who's in need of anything. He doesn't need anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Remember the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. You find a man who is absolutely living for himself. He comes to a place and seeing all that exists and He comes to a place of, of saying, is not this great Babylon I built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Here's, here's someone that, that has come to a place of, he doesn't care at all about what God thinks. He doesn't care at all about the God of this universe. In his mind, it's, it's about building things. It's about his empire. It's about his pride. And, and he's just at a place of, look at this great thing I've made, Babylon. I've built it. Royal dwelling by my mighty power. And for the honor of what? My majesty. The way so many people in this world think. Look at this company that I've built. Look at this house that I've built. Look at this, this retirement plan that I have. Look at all that I have. Look at how much weights I can lift. Look at all of my accomplishments. And it's whatever it is that they have to offer. Just like, this is it. Look at what I've built. And God hates that. In his mind, he was so big. And God's saying, No. I'm going to drive you from men. You're going to be with the beasts of the field. You're going to eat grass like an oxen. And for seven years, you're going to be in this place until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. I'm going to put you in that place for seven years. And so he does. The greatest, greatest king put to a place of crawling around like an animal, eating grass 
for seven years. But he comes to a place in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Why don't you turn there with me for a moment? Deuteronomy chapter 4. It tells us that in verse 34, what did I say? Did I say Deuteronomy? Daniel chapter 4. So confused. Um, it starts with a D. Um, Daniel chapter 4. Most of you guys knew that I made a mistake, right? You'd already corrected it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. It says that, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And it says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. For the glory of my kingdom, my honor, splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was re- restored to, to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So here you have these people in Athens. They think that it's all about their knowledge, all about their kingdom, all about who they are, and that God does not exist, or God is simply in idols and He's everywhere. But they have not yet understood that He is the God of heaven that can do all things, that creates all things, that controls all things. Nebuchadnezzar came to that understanding but it wasn't until he just got knocked to the ground, grazing like the animals. Stay there in, in Daniel for a second. But remember that when, when Paul's talking with people, he says that God has appointed, he, he says that God has determined and pre-appointed times and boundaries boundaries of of dwellings. There may be someone here this morning or multiple people here this morning that do not yet believe in the God of the Bible. You don't trust Christ as your Savior. You're living for yourself. You're here and someone brought you or you're here because you thought you should go to church. But God can be working in just an incredible way to bring you to salvation today. There at the end of Acts chapter 17, there were some that believed, and it mentions these people. Here within this story of of Nebuchadnezzar, he, he comes to a place of having everything taken away. And then he believes. He recognizes God's sovereignty over all things. He recognizes that God's way bigger than he had thought before. 
he realized that his kingdom was nothing. And God does whatever he wants to do. He got it. But in the, in the next chapter, you find his son. And his son goes and he takes these things that were taken from the temple. And he brought these vessels and he and his lords and his wives and his concubines drink wine from them. They praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And he begins to do the same things again. I don't care about the God of Israel. I'm going to take these vessels that have been stolen and we're just going to eat and drink from them. And he's warned. Here's the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the son of the one that grazed in the field. And he still doesn't get it. His heart is so hard. So what does God do? He's there and he says, you're praising the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. He holds your breath. And he has that in his hand. He owns all your ways, and yet you still don't glorify him. And then you see God just come down, and he takes a hand, and he begins to just write an inscription. And here, Nebuchadnezzar's sons, Belshazzar, is just saying, like, what's the meaning of this writing? What does it mean? So it's told to him by Daniel. This is the interpretation of each word. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and, you're, and given to the Medes and Persians. And it tells us that very night, Belshazzar, king of Chaldeans, was slain. Killed. You see, his dad learned the hard way. But his son didn't learn from his dad. You go to the next chapter and, and what takes place? Here's Daniel and King Darius likes him. But all those other guys are trying try to get him thrown into the lion's den. and He gets thrown into the lion's den. And God stops the mouths of all the lions. Keeps Daniel safe. God is not a God that's small, that's frustrated, that can't do what he wants to do. He's a God that can make someone graze in the field and he can make somebody come to a place of just writing on a wall saying your kingdom is going to be taken away today. Today. He could take those that had Daniel thrown into the lion's den, all thrown into the lion's den right after, and all of them are consumed. There's nothing too hard for God. And so when we find in our passage here this morning, God made the world and everything in it since he's the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. 
He's not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He holds your breath in his hands. And yet, God says to Belshazzar, yet you did not glorify me. I hold your breath in my hand, yet you did not glorify me. Verse 26, and he made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth. He's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You may be here this morning because God determined that you would be living at this time in this place so that he would speak directly to your heart that you might grow for him and find him, even though he wasn't far away. That's the God that we serve. Does this give you boldness in proclaiming the gospel? Here's, here's Paul in Athens, and these guys are just worshiping false gods, don't believe in God at all, and, and yet there's those that are coming to salvation because God determines things. Pre-appointed times, boundaries, dwelling places. It also ought to make us as believers just praise Him for our salvation. You weren't saved by chance. You were saved by a sovereign God who saved you. Determined things. You didn't hear the gospel by chance. You weren't so lucky to be at church that day. You weren't so lucky to listen to the radios that day. You weren't so lucky to have the mom that you had or the grandma that you had or the grandpa that you had or the dad that you had. You're not so lucky to have the friend that shared the gospel with you. There is a God that pre-appointed things, boundaries, dwelling places, so that you would grope for him and find him. But he wasn't far away. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or or man's devising. Don't think of him as being just one of these idols. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to what? To repent. The call to these people in Athens is, okay, you have existed. He has not yet consumed you. Grace has been given to you. But now he is calling you to repent. To repent means to make a change of direction. You may be here this morning, you're hearing the gospel for the first time, and you're hearing that God gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who died on the, sins, on the cross for, for your sins, that whosoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. That he is the God that created all things, that sustains all things, that he doesn't need anything. And yet, whosoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. And you hear this, and God would be saying, it is by grace that you have continued up until this point. But now he's calling all men to repent. And that's what Paul is saying. Everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's calling you to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. So repent. Change directions. Follow Christ. 
He's given assurance to all, to, to this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. You know that he's going to come and judge because he raised Christ from the dead. He's risen. And then they heard of the resurrection. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and they believed. And then he mentions them. Some people heard and they believed. I pray that today might be the day in which you hear and believe. God is not like the way so many people think. He's not small. He doesn't just look the way, other way and let all religions, all people go to heaven. He has made a way of salvation. It is through faith in his son. He is so clear that there is no other way. Just as much as Nebuchadnezzar crawled on the ground like a beast. Just as much as his son was put to death that very night. You can know that we serve a God who will judge in righteousness. And our only hope is that our sins were nailed to the cross when Jesus died. And his righteousness is placed on our account. That is our only hope in this life. There are some that heard that message and they believed. Some said, oh, we'll hear more about it later. But some the Holy Spirit works in such a way upon their hearts that at that moment, at that time, in Athens, they believed and they followed. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, may today be that day for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the picture that you give us of yourself in Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you are a God that saves, that saves. We thank you that you're a God that creates all things, sustains all things. There's nothing too hard for you. You're in need of nothing. And yet you are a God who has made it so that we can spend eternity with you by the work of Christ upon the cross. And we have the assurance that we know that these things are true because you caused Christ Jesus, after dying upon the cross, to rise again from the dead. May our faith be in you. May our hope be in you. And may today be a day in which you bring someone to salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.